Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. sisters in the front seat with an ice cream cone My ma's in the back seat sitting all alone so My pa steers her slow out of life For a test drive down Michigan Avenue Now my ma's your fingers her wedding band Watches the salesman stare at my old man's hand He's telling us all about the break he'd give us If he could, but he just can't But if I could, I swear I'd know just what I'd do now, Mr. Day, the lottery I win, I ain't ever gonna ride no used car again. Today we go behind the lens of two legendary rock photographers whose lives connected when one was a teenager looking to learn more about the business and the other had already taken two iconic album covers of her older brother by 13 years, Bruce. It truly was a rock and roll exposure moment, and I am so excited today to bring to you, to Financially Speaking, my conversation with Frank Stefanko and Pam Springsteen. Because of our stay-at-home safety precautions, we recorded this. Originally, this was going to be done in Asbury Park, and the stories began flowing. I hope you will walk away with a better understanding of the business of rock photography through the lens of some true masters. I asked Frank, who shot both the covers of Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River, to start off the show telling the story of how he and Pam first met, and we will go from there. I really hope you enjoy this dialogue as much as I did recording it. Enjoy the show. So Bruce, we had worked in 1978 on Darkness on the Edge of Town with quite a few sessions. And then in 1980, we did The River. In 1982, we did Nebraska, even though I didn't get the cover. Uh, David got the cover of that one. David Michael Kennedy, that is. But somewhere in there, and I'm not sure if it was 78, 80, or 82, somewhere in there with Bruce coming back and forth, 82, that's what I thought during the uh, Nebraska shoots. Bruce gives me a call, like, you know, pick up the phone, Hey, Frank, it's Bruce. I'm up here at Newark Airport. I'm picking up my sister, Pammy. She's getting into photography. Can we come down and check out your dark room? Uh, you know, what are you doing? I'll be here. Come on. So they drive some 65, 70 miles down the New Jersey Turnpike to Haddonfield, New Jersey, where uh, I was living at the time. My father and I had built a, a dark room in the, in the basement of the house that I was living in. And Pam and Bruce came down and uh, looked around. And as I recall, 
Pam was very shy. She didn't say much, but she took everything in, saw the enlargers. She saw the table, the wet part and the dry part and, you know, and all the supplies I had up on the shelves and everything. And, uh, and uh, that was that. And they, you know, you want some soda, you want some beer. We got in the car and back up to uh, North Jersey. They hightailed it. Pam, how do you remember that? Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say how fun and how crazy it is that I'm doing this show with Frank because what Frank doesn't know is when I was maybe, I don't know, 16, my mom in our house had a room and the room was full of all of Bruce's things, all of the scrapbooks that she kept, photos that were sent to her, gold records were kept in there. So it was like this this treasure chest, this room of really fun things to go through. So I used to go in there and look around, but there were some proof sheets that were sitting on a shelf and I was just drawn to these proof sheets. They were Frank's. Of course, I didn't know Frank at the time, but it was the photo that Bruce used on the cover of his book, Frank's photo. And there was the proof sheet of it in this closet type room and I was so drawn to it at that age before I was ever taken to Frank's house or to see his dark room or anything I cut out the photo from the proof sheet and put it in a little frame a little flowered little white flowered frame which I have on my shelf in my office at home to this day That is so sweet. That is so sweet. So here we are some 42 years later, yeah. and, and today both Frank and Pam have their body of work of beautiful photographs available through one of the world's leading fine art music photography homes, the Morrison Hotel Gallery, along with those who made and continue to make an indelible mark on music culture with photographic portrayal of the industry's most influential artists. Both Frank and Pam have an interesting duality to their lives and their work, and and we're going to explore that a bit deeper, their stories, their work, and also how they're both managing in this new normal as we head into our third month now in New Jersey of quarantine from uh, coronavirus. So Pam, you're back living in New Jersey with your daughter, Ruby, after spending most of your life in California. But I'd like to go back to 1969 specifically, mostly because of a photo that you have when your folks packed up the Rambler in Freehold and headed out west. And you showed that photo recently on, on the wonderful Instagram special you had. Tell us a little bit about that photograph, what that's meant to you, and, and your journey out to California at seven years old? Yep, seven and a half. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, my parents decided that they wanted to move to California across the country in 1969. I guess at the time, a lot of people were moving to California. It was the place to go, land of opportunity and sunshine all the time. And they packed up the car. My brother was 19. My sister was 18. They were very much in full swing of their own lives. And they packed up the car and off we went. And all their belongings were literally on the roof of the roof rack of that car, which was a Buick Rambler. And I was in the back seat with a cooler filled with snacks and (laughs) (laughs) Coca-Cola. Of course. Yep. They had 
$2,000 and they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know anyone in California. They didn't have jobs in California. So it was really, really adventurous. It was a huge adventure. And so they packed up the car in the photo that you're referring to. You can see the roof rack and all the mm-hmm. belongings on the roof. My mom says, and I, I vaguely remember this, that we got about a mile down the road and everything fell off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't tied down properly. <laughs> Sounds about right for most road trips. <laughs> right. So out of the car they got, put everything back on the roof, and across country we went. We we Literally, they had enough money to stay in a motel every other night. So we would stay at a Motel 6 or a travel lodge, my mom said, so that I could swim in the pool. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the next night, we would sleep in the car. And across country, we went. That photo is really important for me. It symbolizes that journey, which was a, a major experience in my life and a major move in my life. And we stopped at the Old West Museum. At the Old West Museum, okay. The Old West Museum. And so they had covered wagons and they had all kinds of stuff from the pioneer days, which was sort of symbolic because there we were pioneers in 1969 moving across country, right? So when we were leaving, my dad picked me up and put me on the roof and took that photo. It's very vivid in my mind, that memory. So from there, we, we made it to San Francisco. Why did you uh, choose San Francisco? Why did they choose oh, San Francisco? Well, my mom says they chose San Francisco because Bruce had a girlfriend that had been there and said it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, she must have been 17 or 18. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she knew. But that, that's what actually been going on. In San Francisco in 1969, boy, that was yeah. uh, that was not freehold anymore. That's right. That was not freehold anymore. So we arrived. We arrived in California. We drove first. We drove through Sausalito, and then we drove through Golden Gate Park, and it was yeah. We were not in freehold anymore. Yeah. So my parents stopped at a, a real estate agency or whatever to look for a place to live. And the woman there said, you don't want to raise a child here. Go down 30 miles down the coast. So they did. So they drove about 30 miles south mm-hmm. and ended up in a town called San Mateo. Lived in a motel for a month. My mother found a job. They enrolled me in school and they stayed there for 29 years. Hmm. And you you know, spent most of your youth there. And then at what age did you head down to L.A.? I moved to L.A. when I was 18. Yes, because Bruce had a girlfriend that said it was nice. <laughs> oh, well, I, I, none of these things are surprising, I think, to anyone well, listening. <laughs> well, you know, when you're 18 and, and San Mateo, you know, is the Bay Area, a really great place to grow up, a really beautiful area. But L.A. was where it was all happening. So even right. though I didn't know anything about it, I knew we went to Disneyland every year, once a year. But I really didn't know, you know, I was 18 years old. I was really kind of naive, but it just seemed like that's the place to go. So I said to my mom, when I turn 18, I'm going to L.A. You actually were, you paid and went into Disneyland, unlike your brother and Steve Van Zandt, who snuck in. Um, We did not have bandanas on. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So they let us stay. (laughs) (laughs) So 
You're, you're in L.A. It's the early 80s. Ironically, I was living in L.A. at the same time after working for Larry King and working in, in TV and doing a variety of different things, including being on Love Connection, which I shared with you earlier. But it was a crazy time, and you, you actually got to appear in one of the greatest movies of all time. Now, was there an acting bug, something that just, you know, how did the Fast Times at Ridgemont High thing happen? Yeah, no, there was no acting bug. Acting was the furthest thing from my mind. I was, as Frank said, I was very shy. So acting was not on my list of things that I was very interested in doing at all. But the way that I got into that was Bruce was doing a show, I believe it was at the sports arena, and I was backstage, and there was a casting director there named Eve Branstein, who cast lots of Norman Lear shows. <laughs> and um, she didn't know who I was, but she, she cast one day at a time also with one of her shows and facts of life and all those shows. Oh, sure. Yeah. So she came up to me and she said, you know, are you, what's your name? Are you interested in acting? Would you like to come and audition? And for me, it was just, I think I had just turned 18. Didn't really know what I was going to do. And I suddenly saw this other world open up to me. Right. So I said yes, and and down to L.A. I went. Of course, I had never acted before in my entire life and had no idea what I was doing. So you're never Um, in the school shows. That wasn't you. Oh, no, that wasn't me. (laughs) But she was really nice, and she cast me initially as, like, little extra roles on Facts of Life, and then I'd get a line here or there. And then I got an agent, and I auditioned. My very first audition was for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, and and to work with Cameron Crowe, one of the great writers of all time and probably the director of one of my favorite movies of all time, Almost Famous. I'm sure that was the whole experience was fun. And anyone wants wants to watch uh, Fast Times, Pam is, I believe, a cheerleader, has a a nice scene at the the football field or something like that, if I recall. Yeah, I have a few few scenes. Dina Phillips, cheerleader number two. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, they were they were crazy times. We probably crossed paths at the whiskey at some point um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> during that period. So before we move on, Pam, I mentioned earlier that both Frank and Pam kind of have this duality in their lives. And, and Frank, I'm not sure anyone has ever said this to you, but I kind of see you as a Clark Kent Superman kind of guy in the world of rock photography. You know, by day, this mild-mannered, you know, hardworking guy. But at night, there you go. You know, you would run out and strap on the camera, not a cape. And suddenly you're hitting all the coolest clubs in Philly and in New York and in the village and capturing this amazing time in rock music. So I guess the question is, how did you get into photography in the first place? Who handed you your first camera? I've written about this in my book, but my father. I was rooting through a drawer in our dining room and I found this old Kodak brownie box camera. And it was literally a box camera. It took 120 roll film. He showed me how to load it up. I loaded it up. I went out into the streets of North Camden, New Jersey, where I lived at the time, just shot pictures and uh, brought the film to the local drugstore a couple blocks away. And couldn't wait for a week or two until they were processed. I ran back and looked at those photos and learned from that and then put a couple more rolls in. And, you know, and, and that evolved over the years. Um, you know, the, the brownie box camera went to an, a brownie 
different camera with a flash on it and then an ansco camera and then a you know little by little then finally i got my first 35 millimeter camera at sears roebuck and i think it was it was either called tower or something i don't remember the name of the camera but sure uh that's the first one i ever used and then of course went through a myriad of 35 millimeter cameras over the years and ultimately worked my way up and then i got into medium format i had a um Mamaya or Mamiya, however you pronounce it, uh, RB67. And I remember the first time I bought it, uh, I, I was shooting Patty Smith, and, and she said, what's the RB stand for? And I said, rhythm and blues. And so, um, you know. Uh, you went to college with Patty Smith. Went to college with Patty. Was that Glassboro? Where, what, what Glassboro level? State Teachers College. Oh, wow. They weren't ready for us. <laughs> Well, then, it was it Glassboro the place that also held the the meeting with Khrushchev and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, big, uh, the big summit meeting yeah yeah exactly. anyway backing up through the cameras I went through all these cameras and all but uh, you were talking about going you know the the dual life the sure. Superman I got married to my first wife who uh, mm-hmm. passed away from cancer many 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 years ago but she's the mother of my children so I, I married at 21 years old and I was working. I had a day job. You know, I had to support my family. Most of my friends were living in New York and Soho at the time. A lot of my friends that I went to high school with and gravitated up to Manhattan. So I would go up to Manhattan on not every weekend because I wanted to spend time at home with the family, but every other weekend or every third weekend, I'd be up with my friends in New York. And we'd go to all these uh, clubs and, and, and I met a lot of people that knew a lot of people and it was right. a, a wild time cbgb's max's kansas city the cafe wa the you know the whole village scene and sure. the firehouse which was a place where a lot of people downtown and so the gay people would gravitate to so there was like you know i'd go to parties robert Rauschenberg's party and this guy's party and yeah i remember going to a party where jay giles band was the house band playing on one floor and there were two other floors and it was party. It was crazy. It I'm was sure. oh, it was an crazy. incredible time. And I'd go back and, and be Mr. Go to work and come home and take care of the family. But, you know, I wanted so much to be in Manhattan, to have my own studio in Manhattan and have people come and I'd have the lights and the backdrops and, you know, uh, go out and have dinner with folks and such and such. I, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money. So I just kept on trudging along, mm-hmm. doing my family thing, and then taking pictures on the side. And then ultimately, but, Now, you weren't teaching, though. I know you went to a teacher's college. No, no. no. Uh, that, Patty, as you said, Patty Smith right. and I were in that same teacher's college. She left early right, and headed up to New York. It was mm-hmm. the end of the farmlands of South Jersey to, yeah. the, you know, to the city. I left shortly after her. We both left with a lot of credits, but uh, we didn't stay to matriculate. It was an interesting time. There were a lot of crazy people down there. Uh, one of Patty's friends, we call her Chaps, Janet Hamill, who is a big published poet and a good friend of Patty's. She was there. There were a lot of characters there, actors and artists and such. But uh, it was it was good. But we were kind of a, a microcosm within this whole bucolic thing going on. So right. Uh, anyway. And you were taking photos at that time of Patty, right, and of everybody. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 I didn't. T- no. When I knew Patty in college, I wrote about her in my my book, Patty Smith, American Artist, and I said that 
you know, we used to congregate in the co-op, which was a place in between classes that we would go. And there were booths and there was a jukebox that had the coolest stuff on it, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, you know, all that kind of stuff on it. And you get a hamburger and you sit down and you, Mm -hmm. you know, take some notes, study your books, whatever, congregate. Patty had this little group of people, Janet Hamill, George Purse Fonts, who was an actor, a thespian, and a bunch of other folks. And I didn't know Patty. And I saw these cool bohemian type people sitting in the booth next to me. And I was looking in my biology book and I looked up and the doors coming into the co-op, they were kind of swinging doors. And when they opened up, I said it created a vacuum. And there was this vision of this woman in a white leather, floor length white leather coat and black, black, raven black hair all down her back. And she come moseying into the co-op like an outlaw in a Western movie. And she saw her friend Janet. She said, chaps, fire of my loins, how are you? (laughs) And I said, now, this is a person I must get to know. (laughs) Yes. So we became lifelong friends. Matter of fact, we just spoke to her about something uh, last week. I didn't photograph her, though, until I started going up. When she moved up to New York, my friend Ken Tisa from uh, high school and his friend, also uh, Howie Michaels, and, and of course, another guy named Robert Maplethorpe. Yes. uh, uh, And there are a bunch of other really cool folks. Sure. All were at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where they first went. Patty, of course, went up to see Howie and and, uh, and Kenny, but ran into Robert. And that whole story is... Exactly. It's Just Kids by Patty Smith. Absolutely. Uh, which is yeah. a wonderful story. So but, work, us, work us to the connection with Patty, where Bruce writes this terrific song and having a difficult time finishing the lyric and approaches Patty... And then obviously we have the epic Because the Night. But somebody else got a little bit of a benefit from that conversation, I believe. Well, Patty had left. She was living in Manhattan with Robert Mablethorpe at the time. You know, everybody had left Pratt by this time. And so I was in Manhattan with all my friends. I would visit Patty and I would start photographing Patty because she was, you know, very, very photogenic and uh, just wonderful to photograph. The best stuff I did was when I got this new RB67 medium format. And I, you know, gave her a lot of the uh, prints that I had made from these sessions. Patty was working on an album called Easter. The cover was photographed by Lynn Goldsmith. Right. She was working in the record plant, West 45th Street, Manhattan, in one studio. In the other studio was Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, working on an album called Darkness on the Edge of Town. And in between sessions, sometimes they would get together. Patty was living, I think, at one point on McDougal Street, 109, I believe, McDougal Street in the village. And Bruce had seen a lot of the photographs that I had given her. And he said, you know, who who did this? Who did this? And uh, she says, my friend Frank. Frank Frank is your biggest fan in South Jersey. You know, (laughs) told me about you and all this stuff, you know. As fate would have it, Bruce was backstage at Patty's, I think at the bottom line, at a show at the bottom line. And Patty said, you know, you should get Frank to photograph you sometime. You know, somewhere in between all that, they were working on Because the Night together. Right. He had started it and she finished it. So 
she called me up one day and she said, Frank, Bruce Springsteen's here and he's looking through your photographs at my place and he really likes your work, you know, and would you be okay if uh, to photograph him at some point? And of course, mm-hmm. Mark second, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear anything for a few months and then one day out of the blue, got a phone call and he says, hey, Frank, this is Bruce. Let's get together and make some photos, you know. <laughs> and I said, Bruce, Bruce, you know, Springsteen, Patty. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was nineteen seven, early nineteen seventy-eight. Right. My God, we've been doing things mm-hmm. together now for forty-three years, forty-two mm-hmm. years. So, it's been a long relationship. For those that don't know the story, Bruce comes down to your home in Haddonfield, New Jersey, and you decide to start taking pictures. I believe in your bedroom with this really interesting background of wallpaper. And just what, what do you remember about those sessions? the most when we had talked on the phone i said do you want me to come up to new york or north jersey or do you want to come down to my place he said no i'll come down to your place you know so the first day came down in a white chevy pickup truck with uh, rust all over the bottom a couple of tree trunks in the back because it was winter mm-hmm. and icy roads and he used that for traction on the rear wheels we sat down in my living room i introduced him to my wife and my two little children and we started looking at some of my photos in my portfolios mm-hmm. and we started talking and we found out that, or at least I found out, I think he realized it. He started feeling comfortable with me. I felt comfortable with him because we both had Italian mothers, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, non-Italian fathers. And they all came, you know, we're blue collar people coming, live, you know, living the Jersey experience and such and such. And we both like the same kind of music and, you know, mm-hmm. So we hit it off and it was comfortable and we started working that day in Haddonfield and we did this over several weeks and at one point he actually came down with two big gigantic uh, what I call pimp mobiles, gigantic automobiles. One was Clarence's and the other was Stevens and the whole East Street band crammed into these two cars and (laughs) came to my house to do some, you know, location stuff uh, in Haddonfield. Ultimately, I went up to New York and did some rooftop. And that was all in 1978. Yep. Amazing. And all these photos, folks, are in further up the road. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, this this incredible anthology of of Frank's work. I want to pivot back to Pam for a second and hear about your transition to photography, how you learned your craft. But again, I learned something else the other night watching you, is that it all started out in a dream for you. Yes. And that is a true story. When I was about 19, oh, well, I was working on Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and I met Neil Preston. And Neil Preston invited me to a Stevie Nicks concert that he was shooting. That was the first time that I had really seen anybody actually work like that. And Neil was great at, at I mean, Neil's photos are amazing, and, and he's shot everybody. But I saw him working, and I thought, I love that. I want to get a camera. So for my 19th birthday, I asked my mom, and dad, her camera, and uh, and I got one. So I just started taking pictures. I was still acting. I didn't think of photography as a career or anything like that. And I just started taking pictures of things that I liked, my friends, my family, my mom, my dad. I moved to New York for a few months. I walked around the city and, and shot a lot there. And then I ended up back in LA. And I was 
happy that I had the experience of acting, but it was not my passion. It was not mm-hmm. something that really I felt was me. And so I was pretty unsatisfied. I had had my camera for a little while. And in my dream, I had a dream one night that I came home. And at the time, I was living in a little garage apartment, an apartment above the garage. And I came home one day, and my apartment had burned to the ground. Everything I owned was gone. Nothing was left standing. And in the middle of all the rubble was my camera on a tripod. And I said to myself that day, when I woke up from that dream, I said, that's a sign. I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. So that was really the turning point for me to start looking into how I could maybe do this professionally. Amazing. So you kind of, you kind of realized you were born to be a photographer. That was really your, that was, was that was your calling. That was your calling. And and you sought out a position with a really famous photographer and Glenn Wexler, I believe. And you, you know, you stayed with it. You talked about for three weeks, he didn't get back to you, but you (laughs) continued and you pursued and you persisted and he offered you an internship and Glenn was doing a lot of uh, album covers. I, you know, yeah. He had done a lot of album covers and was also doing a lot of advertising. Right. So, yeah, I didn't know anything. And so I didn't even know that I couldn't be an assistant. (laughs) That's how little I knew. (laughs) So I walked in and I said, can I be your assistant? And he's like, but you don't know even like I didn't know how to load a Hasselblad. I didn't know how to plug in a light. I didn't know how to take a meter reading. I didn't know anything. So, but, you know, sometimes it's good to be naive, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And have people take a chance on you. And, 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 yeah. and what did you learn yeah. really at the end of the day from Glenn that helped begin develop your own style? Well, Glenn is a master at what he does. Technically, I mean, first of all, his images, his images are, are amazing. His, his portraits of people are, are so wonderful. But at the time, he was also doing a lot of compositing of images and putting them together. But there was no Photoshop, so you had to do them in the darkroom. So you really had to know what you were doing. (laughs) You couldn't just, it wasn't just about, you know, going out with a camera and taking the pictures. No, this was real. He had to know what he was doing. And I was the beneficiary of that. He was extremely generous with all of his knowledge. He taught me how to light. He taught me how to print and you could not make a mistake with him. Like to the second, his prints had to be perfect. And so I really learned how to do things right. Mm. And he also is very good at running his business. So I learned a little bit about that. Exactly. So at this point, you're starting to photograph some musicians and, you know, you had one in the family, but obviously being 13 years younger than Bruce and on a different coast, this was a whole new world for you too. So when you're photographing an artist or musician, are you trying to amplify the image they already have or create a new one with your work? Okay, good question. I don't even actually think about that at all. I don't think about amplifying an image or creating an Frank's image. Frank's nodding. Frank's agreeing on that. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't even really cross my mind. <laughs> so, you know, when I, when I went into photography, when I started working for Glenn, I, I didn't think of myself as I want to become a music photographer. I didn't think about that at all, actually. I didn't 
really know what kind of photographer I wanted to be. I just knew that I wanted to do photography and maybe I would go into fashion, even though I didn't know anything about fashion. I just didn't know. And so I was just shooting. It wasn't something I actually set out to do. It just sort of unfolded that way. And I'm so glad that it did. But I had a friend, my best friend, actually, she worked at A&M Records. There were some new artists there and I would just play around in Glenn's studio at night, taking some photos of them just for fun, practice. And that led to somebody at the redeveloped, whatever, Cream Magazine in the early 90s. Right. Cream mm-hmm. out. So he had, he had the, pub, the publisher of that magazine had seen some of my photos just at a, literally at a party, called me up. He probably didn't know I actually wasn't a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and called me up and said, would you like, I'm launching this magazine. Would you like to shoot for it? And I said, sure. And that is really what got me going in that world because I shot so many people for that magazine. But, you know, when I go in to do a shoot, I don't think about image or anything like that. I think about trying to connect with the person and and bringing out something real in the moment. Who were some of the most memorable people that you when you shot for Cream at that time? Well, my very first shoot was with Was Not Was, and uh, that was pretty exciting. I shot, let's see, for them. Keith, I believe, was for Spin. I did Neil Young, of course. Right. And you had said, yeah, it was supposed to be up at his ranch, and it wound up being in the studio. Yes. Or in a hotel. I I like these stories because, you know, these are the things that you have to really deal with in the real world when you're working, right? Right. So you go out there, and you don't start out with all this confidence. Confidence is something that you earn as you go along. (laughs) And often it's through the mistakes that you make. And everybody makes mistakes. So I like the stories where there were challenges. And that, that was one of them because the idea of going to Neil Young's ranch and shooting him there, that's a photographer's dream. <laughs> then, I mean, shooting Neil Young A is great. That was, I was, right. believe me, very excited no matter where they told me I had to do it. But then, you know, you go to a video shoot and you're not, you're not the priority there. Right. And so we had to wait hours. Which is not uncommon. Which song? Which video was he shooting for? Do you remember what was the song? Uh, I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Was it during the Harvest Moon period? It was. It was shot in a church. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's right. yeah. He had a whole choir and everything. It yeah, was, it was quite amazing. Actually, it was really fun just hanging out there and watching. Right. Um, no, I'm sure. I, yeah. I'm sure it was. So you also mentioned in an in, in Instagram, specifically around this time, this is when Tunnel of Love had come out later in the 80s. And Bruce had you take some really amazing candid shots in his home, I imagine in, in Rumson at the time. And one particularly that, that resonates with me is the shot of him writing at his, I guess this is, his, uh, is this the kitchen table or a, a writing desk? His writing desk. It's a writing desk. Yeah. I mean, it's just everything about this image, folks, is you need to absolutely take a look at this in the links. But describe that emotion. And, you know, obviously he's your brother, but, you know, just what's happening in this picture? Right. Well, it was, I believe that was, yeah, it was like the mid 80s. So, you know, I wasn't really a photographer yet. I didn't do that as a profession at that time. I had taken some pictures of my dad that I sent to my brother and, and he liked. And so he asked me to come out and 
take some photos of them. So I literally just flew out from LA and we hung out one afternoon, just very casually, me, a camera, him, some film. And we took some photos in the recording studio, which was above the garage in his house in Rumson. Then we went out in his yellow, I think it was a Cadillac, big yellow Cadillac, which he did use that photo for something recently. We went driving around in that. And then we went back to the house and went upstairs to his writing room. And it was, I don't know, none of it was really very planned. It was just kind of, which is what I love about shooting him, actually, is that that's always how it kind of is with us. It's just sort of we're hanging out, we're hanging out. And he sat down at the table and opened up his notebook and... Mm-hmm. You know, you try to just be a fly on the wall, <laughs> right? you know, and stay out of the way and capture the moment. In many ways, if I'm correct, one of those photos was used for the single sleeve for Brilliant Disguise. And in many ways, you were kind of that brilliant disguise in the room there. So it's, uh, it's a nice, <laughs> nice, nice the way that, that ties well, it, yourself in. You know. It was exciting for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> so let's talk cameras for a little bit. Frank, and again, I know you mentioned a number of them, and you've done really just incredible work with, with both a Hasselblad and, and a Leica. Did certain photographers influence you growing up and from the past that led you to use that particular equipment and develop your own style? And, and before you answer that, I actually want to quote Bruce from his biography because I think it ties really well into, into this particular question. Bruce wrote about you. His talent was he managed to strip about your celebrity, your artifice, and get to the raw you. His photos had a purity and a street poetry to them. They were lovely and true, but they weren't slick. Frank looked for your true grit. Bruce went on to also say that your pictures captured the people I was writing about in my songs and showed me the part of me that was still one of them. I just love that quote, but I think it kind of works back to, to, to the question of, of maybe photographers that influenced you as you were starting your career and throughout your career. First of all, Tammy is the Hasselblad person. I, I, I never had a Hasselblad, couldn't afford a, a Hasselblad. I now have some Leicas and, and some <laughs> back to the, the photographing, though, of people. Pam had, had um, hit on it and, uh, and you know, I talked the same way somebody had asked me regarding the darkness album sorry one more minute back to pam sure one of the most beautiful things she's done recently you know and i don't want to get ahead of where you're going mitch but she was invited down to luck farm down down to willie nelson's place to do uh, one of his most recent albums and the photography is magnificent I was so jealous. <laughs> oh, it's spectacular, and and that is actually a photograph I'm going to be ordering. Um, I already have a, a beautiful spot. Uh, my wife loves horses, and I'm debating between the horse shot, which is just just incredible and reminds us of a trip we took recently in Kentucky. But yeah, the the shots of Willie with Trigger his guitar, those are those are terrific, and and definitely we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. But so, what is it about photography that motivates you, Frank? People had said uh, regarding the darkness, well, what were you thinking when you developed that character, uh, when you were shooting Bruce and you were developing that character that were so close to the characters that Bruce would, you know, 
we're singing about, we're talking about mm-hmm. in darkness and ultimately in the river as well, which is right and so forth. Even when I did the shoot for uh, Nebraska, even it was a tremendous amount of work we did together. The answer I gave was I was never shooting these characters. Like Pam had mentioned earlier, you go in with your camera, you're alone with your subject, or you have, you know, some, maybe some lighting people or something, but you're basically, it's basically one-on-one. And I wasn't shooting Johnny 99, or I wasn't shooting Mm -hmm. this guy or that guy. I was shooting the young man that was in front of me and who was Bruce Springsteen. And I was shooting the essence of that young man that I saw in front of me. Nothing contrived. It was just, this is the guy I'm photographing. I want to make sure I want to get the lighting as best I can. I want to get some emotion out of them. We would use different areas, different positions, different poses. And then Bruce would give you the rest or anybody else there, Patty Smith or uh, Southside Johnny or anybody else that I had photographed. Danny Clinch is the first one to say it. It's a, a mutual thing. It's a, you're two people working together, you know. Right, right. A little bit of give and a little bit of take. And if you see me, because that's the thing about most of the good photographers that I know, and you were talking about who my influences were, but not to lose my thought, if you see truly, a good photographer sees things that most people just take for granted or walk right past. You know, you have to have the intelligence and the eye to note that when you see something and it makes sense in your mind, and then you're going to put that graphically onto a piece of paper or a slide or a movie or whatever, um, you know, because I, I consider the great cinematographers great photographers and great artists as well. So if you can do that consistently over a lifetime, and one day somebody says, hey, that's a good photographer, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's what we strive for. But... My influences in the early days were Edward Steichen, Alfred Stieglitz. They were two of the old world great artists. Right. uh, Actually turning the mechanics of photography into an art form. Right. Life magazine. Did Stieglitz, wasn't he involved with life? Some of his great uh, photographs. Right. uh, Steichen did a photograph of uh, J. Paul Getty sitting in a chair and he had highlighted there was a stream of light that went on one arm of the chair and it looks like he's carrying a knife. It's like he has a knife, you know, this is a big financier. Sure. Um, then to get a little bit offbeat, another one was Deanne Arbus. She's one of my favorites too, because of, you know, just the fact that uh, she was not traditional. She saw things completely differently. And, um, you know, so those, those uh, photographers were some, there were a lot, a lot of them, but that was partly the nucleus of people that I tried to not emulate, but to learn from. Sure. And you didn't mention her name, but I, I love this quote from Annie Leibovitz, who obviously I think fits in in many ways in the genre too, is that she said once that one doesn't stop seeing, one doesn't stop framing. It doesn't turn off and turn on. It's on all the time. I guess for both of you, do you find yourself, even if you don't have a camera in your hand, mentally taking pictures. I mean, Pam, here we are in in this quarantine world and probably not what you were expecting with your time in New Jersey. Do you find that, that you're just kind of mentally taking pictures all the time? All the time. All the time. It drives my daughter crazy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I look at her and I'm like, 
I got to get that shot. <laughs> that looks so great. Look at the light. The light on you right now is so perfect. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just get it. And of course, she's 17. So she wants yeah. nothing to do with that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's certainly the age. But yeah. once you actually get outside, there probably are plenty of things to be looking at as well. Frank, you find that throughout, no matter where you are. And, you know, and I've been with you at concerts and variety of different places, but you just kind of always in your head thinking about that yeah. image. I think I, I told you a story last night about being at one of Bruce's concerts in Philly and uh, right. standing photographs in the crowd. And Dave Marsh walked by and said, Frank, I didn't know you were a paparazzo. <laughs> and these so, photos uh, and the photos from the Philadelphia show in 2016 are also in Frank's book further on up the road. They're, they're, I was there a few feet away from him pretending to be a photographer with my iPhone, but his shots are just magnificent. In Milan was in there and, and a few others. But no, what happens, what Pam's referring to, what I was referring to, over a period of time, your eyes become camera lenses. You see things with your eyes as if you were through the viewfinder and you're always composing. You're always appreciating if there's light like on Ruby and, and mm -hmm. so forth. So that if you don't do that, if it doesn't truly like that, then I, I don't think you could ever really truly be a photographer. Mm -hmm. Pam, I wanted to jump back past doing The Cream, and, and obviously you've done Rolling Stone and Spin, but you really, really got into hip-hop very early and doing photography, Ice Cube specifically. Talk a little bit about what you liked about not only the hip-hop music, but the, the generation and, and what you found and were able to create such great images and album covers and, you know, and, and Ice Cube specifically coming up with the idea of what you did with his face that wound up being part of uh, really his shows. Yeah, it did. Well, that's kind of an interesting part of my career because I was a fan of the music, but I think I started getting those jobs because actually I don't really know for sure, but the way that I shot and the way that I lit was always very moody with lots of shadows, dark shadows and grainy. And, and I think my style just sort of lent itself to being hired for those jobs. The first time I shot Ice Cube was for Spin Magazine. And he came to my studio and he had a big entourage. He was very easy to work with, although there wasn't really a lot of communication between us. I mean, that really is the whole thing about shooting anybody. It doesn't matter who you're shooting. Is that You have to create the trust. You have to create an environment where the person that you're photographing trusts you and feels safe with you and knows that they can let down their guard and open up and have fun at the same time. That's a huge part of the job. So we did that on that first shoot with him. So six months later, I got called to shoot his album cover. I was really surprised and very excited. That is what they wanted. They want to look a very dark and moody and yeah, I, well, I you, capture, you capture what the artist looking for, the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, just fantastic record, which I didn't, I honestly didn't know till you mentioned on Instagram, uh, on Raising Sand, that, that that's your image. That's, that just captures that record. So, I mean, it captures them, but it just, there's so many different 
things about that photograph that that I just love and and you know we're not going to get into everybody but obviously Keith Richards you, you tell a great story about he came down and the guy brought his vodka and orange juice first and and you're able to get really a wonderful wonderful shot of Keith which you know as uh, today everybody thinks of Keith as the only guy that doesn't need to wear a mask I think that's pretty much <laughs> as most people think about Keith Richards but you shot Neil Young and Tom Hanks and and Randy Newman on a bicycle which was just really what, what, where did that idea come from? It just, you saw the bike and said, Randy, just ride yeah. around, you know? Well, Randy's fun. So you can do anything with Randy. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he likes fun. He's going to go along, he goes along with whatever you want to try. You know, we had done some nice safe shots, you know, earlier in the day. And there was the bike, there was a bike in the studio. And, and honestly, I don't remember if I asked him to ride around on the bike. Or if he decided he wanted to ride around on the bike, <laughs> it could have gone either way. <laughs> right, right. But so yeah, no, they're they're terrific. And Frank buried the lead here, but the Willie Nelson stuff is is spectacular. Just talk a little bit about that experience a little bit more, because that's very recent. Yes, that was right. that was recent. That was a real honor to be asked to shoot Willie Nelson. We went down to his ranch, Luck, Texas, mm-hmm. and I was thrilled about that because what a great location. We went the day before the shoot. We didn't know really how long we were going to have with him. We didn't really know what the weather was going to be. It was, I think it might have been in February. So it was a little cold. And the ranch, there was one building that did have heat. And then the other structures didn't. So it was really about figuring out how we were going to make him the most comfortable and be ready to move through to get as many setups as we possibly could in a short amount of time. Again, just to kind of make him comfortable. So we went the day before, we did a location scout. I picked about six different spots where I knew I wanted to shoot. And the day of the shoot, we got there early and made sure that everything was set up, every light was set up, every mark was set so that we can just boom, 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 move him through the setup. The one thing he did say to me was that he didn't like to pose. <laughs> so I said, not a problem. There will be no posing here. No, no posing allowed. <laughs> so like I said earlier, the very first and most important thing is to, to develop a rapport with the person that you're photographing to get them to trust you, to know, let them know that they can trust you and to stay out of their way and allow them to open up and just try to capture something real. So Willie was great. He was fun. He was funny. He was incredibly giving and generous with his time. He didn't get annoyed with me (laughs) for asking him to do certain things. And, you know, we really had a great day. And then at the end of the day, probably, well, one of my favorite parts of the whole day, he had an old truck. And I said, can I photograph you with your truck? And everybody was like, Oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to go out with him in that truck. And I was like, yeah, I do. I, I, I would love to photograph him. No, you're crazy. You can't go out with him in that truck. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't know what the big deal is about the truck. Right? <laughs> no, like, all right, I'm just telling you now, it's at your own risk. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll take it. So Willie was like, let's go. So we get in the truck. It's just he and I. It's not the assistant, it's not the whatever crew we right. had there, right? It's just he and I. 
And I turned to him and I said, finally, I've got you alone. <laughs> I said, let's go. <laughs> so off we go in the truck. And there was this little pink house on the property. I said, drive by that pink house. Let's do a couple photos there. So we drive by the pink house. I get out of the passenger side and I hop into the back of the pickup truck. I hop into the back of the truck and I'm shooting him through the window, through the side mirror and through the back window. And suddenly he starts to take off. The truck starts to move and then it starts to move a little faster. <laughs> And now I realize what they were trying to exactly. tell me. <laughs> well, you were warned. I was warned. I was like, hey, Willie. So, of course, I stopped the truck and I got back in the passenger seat and we had a big laugh. And, and he drove me all around the property. Okay. And we took just the two of us. And yeah. it was just, it was like, it was so much fun. And it was yeah. so what a What a remark. His face is just. It's always been just just so photogenic to begin with, but you know, the actually the yeah. older he's gotten, the more just fascinating Beautiful. just to watch him at yeah. any time. Speaking of road trips, and I guess it was the late '90s, Bruce is putting together Ghost of Tom Jode, and you guys went out. Well, you were supposed to go out to the Mojave Desert, and you wound up leaving a little late. Give us a little snapshot yeah. of that story. Those yeah. are wonderful photos that were used for a number of different things. Yeah, so we did make it to the Mojave Desert, but my original idea was to go out to El Mirage, which is a dry lake bed, which was quite a bit further, maybe a couple hours, hour and a half outside of LA. We got a late start in the day. So by the time we got out to the desert, it was maybe three, four in the afternoon, the sun's starting to go down and we haven't shot a single frame yet. So I said, let's just pull over. We literally just pulled over to the side of the road. And there was a chain link fence and we started taking some pictures and took some photos in a couple different locations and we're losing light pretty fast. And so the highway was up on the ridge and I saw that there was still light up there. So I said, let's run up to the highway and get some pictures up there. So we ran up to the highway and Bruce starts walking down the highway. I'm shooting really fast because the sun's going down really fast. And I've got high-speed film in the camera, and he's walking down the highway. And you can tell in the photos, the headlights are on in the car. So that's yeah. how it was getting dark. And we shot this whole series of images, which after I processed the film and we were looking at them, it was like a little film. It was like, because I was shooting so fast to get the, the shot. And what they did was they took a whole bunch of those images and they put them together and they used them for the advertising spot, which was like a 20-second spot the album. From there, I got a call from the record company, actually, and they said, gee, you know, we really love what we did with the commercial, and we're thinking about doing the video. It's all stills. Would you be interested? And of course, I'm interested. And that turned out to be really an amazing project for me. I really planned it. I planned it as much as I could. First of all, if you don't have a great song, you don't have a great video. So right. it's really... No, it's really, I mean, it was there, like, a ma it, absolutely yeah, a yeah, masterpiece. Yeah. And then I got to visually put images to that. Yeah. Really incredible for me. So I, I literally got in my car and for three weeks, sometimes by myself, sometimes with just an assistant I took with me, drove mm. around the desert, drove around the Mojave Desert and shot thousands of images 
I kind of had it storyboarded, you know, just like loosely with some ideas, but we shot thousands of images. And that's really one of the projects that I'm the most proud of and mm -hmm. feel like I would love to do something like that again. And it's really meaningful to me. And Frank, obviously, and of course, because it's my brother. And, of course. And to be able to work with your sibling on a creative level like that is... On truly one of, one of the best, uh, just one of, I mean... Everyone's got their favorites, but that is in my top five always. Way back when, you know, after Pam had, had done that job and the album came out and so forth mm -hmm. and so on, Colleen Sheehy, who was at the time the curator of the Frederick Wiseman Museum on the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, was the first, I think, the first museum to do a Bruce Springsteen retrospect. It was called right. Bruce Springsteen, or the Highway. And I was honored to have a few photographs in that. I went out to the opening on the opening day. And I was hoping to see Pam uh, at that one, but I was out there with David Rose, who did A Lucky Town. And there was, uh, you know, Dave Marsh and a, and a few other folks, good folks were out there. However, the reason I'm saying is Pam was given an entire room, this gigantic room, and 40, count them folks, 4-0, of her Ghost of Tom Joad series photographs blown up very large were just all over that room. And to walk into that room with Pam's photos of her brother in the, and the desert and everything was an experience unto itself. Thank you, Frank. Uh, that's great. Glad you brought that up because that's, that's great. So a couple kind of lightning round things I wanted to get to. But I did want to ask you first, because Frank and I were talking yesterday and kind of he and Bruce and Steven and Southside and kind of the Jersey guys kind of have their own little saying, their little, hey, Jersey, which is just kind of a reference to, to Jersey guys living the Jersey life for so many years. And here you are now you're kind of a hey, Jersey again. So do you feel that way or, or, or are you just sort of like kind of a half a hey, Jersey? <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, obviously, I, my whole family is here. My whole family has always been here. My mom is here. I have been deeply connected and drawn and have longed to be back here with them for such a long time. Yeah. So I'm really thrilled to be spending this time here. Oh, really I'm absolutely. Time. And, you know, in some ways we have another kind of Don McLean moment here. I was thinking about this yesterday with the pandemic, which has kind of forced in some ways another day that music died. You know, it's out there. It's out there to listen to. It's out there to stream. It's out there to enjoy on vinyl. John Resnick happens to be my neighbor, lead singer of the Goo Goo Dolls. He came out on his porch one day, played a couple of songs for the neighborhood. So, I mean, there are people that are, that are doing these amazing things. Obviously, Bruce was so positive on, on East Street yesterday on the channel, talking about another day of 50,000 fans singing and yelling at him in stadiums. And it's kind of hard maybe to see that today, but you know, it is something that I do believe we'll see again. But, but what do you guys think about the next few years in the music industry? You've both spent so much of your lives in this industry. You know, do you think there's a new normal for every industry, as people are saying, but what do you think changes and what do you think stays the same? As I'm concerned, music as a going concern will always be there. I mean, from the time that first guy uh, came out of his cave and put a few rocks together and made a noise, music will be there. It will evolve. It will live on. 
there's no question that our lives have changed and it's never ever going to be quite the same going forward. However, music is there. It's there for us. It's there to enjoy. It's there to soothe our souls. It's there to rev us up. It's there for whatever reason that we love music. So these stadium type uh, events may not happen for a while and uh, we're all going to miss that, but people are still going to record. People are still going to put out music and eventually we'll get back to enjoying it, you know, in stadiums again, but music will never go, never go away. No, no, never. I mean, it was so interesting in the middle of all this that Bob Dylan dropped that the song about Kennedy's assassination, that 16 minute, I just, I couldn't stop listening to it. It was just, just incredible. And I'm sure so many writers like your brother, I'm sure are, are, are working on, on music now that will somehow comment on this incredible time that, that we're going through. This came up with Danny Clinch, so I thought I'd bring it up with you. In the age of digital media, how do you control your own images and maintain credit when things wind up online or in films or can easily be shared on the internet? And, you know, Frank, I, I know you've dealt with this a lot. I mean, you can start with this and then like to hear what Pam has to say. To your last point, uh, Rolling Stones, Ghost in a Ghost Town. Don't forget that one. Yeah, oh, that's true. One of my dear friends is Eric Miola, and we all right. know Eric, you know, and his beautiful, beautiful photography. For those who don't, he shot Born to Run, the cover of Born to Run, so amongst uh, many Eric, others. Yes, Eric and I talk a lot about this because our images pop up on, you know, on a coffee mug here or a sneaker there or some guy in Belgium had put this out or that. It, we, we started, you know, putting a guy bosh on it you know, getting in touch with the people and taking it off of certain websites and so forth and so on. But I think after a, a long, long time of being associated with certain photographs, it gets to be, you know, just an unending battle. And and I guess, I don't know if Eric's um, acquiesced to it yet or not or capitulated, but I got to the point where, hey, if you want to use the damn photographs, go ahead and use the damn photographs, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you're making humble, hey, Give me a call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Pam, have you dealt with that? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky situation. I don't know how you stay on top of it. I think you kind of, you know, do the best that you can. And I've had a few experiences. There was a rock and roll auction website or something that I was on one day and there were my proof sheets from a shoot at, like that I did in the 90s and with my phone number. <laughs> oh, my God. Because it, because when you when you sure. get the proof sheets up from the lab, there was your name and your phone number. Right, right. Yep. <laughs> you know, they put it on the proof sheet. Mm-hmm. So there are these proof sheets for sale. And I'm thinking, first of all, how in the world did they get them? How did they get them? I don't know. And then I was walking through the Grove, which is a big mall in Los sure. Angeles. Everybody knows the Grove now. Yep. And there's this really fancy clothing store and there in the window was a t-shirt with my one of my photos of Bruce on it one of my original photos of Bruce on the t-shirt in the window they're probably selling it for like two hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like I don't know I, I don't really know uh, other than you know I mean there's copyright laws but with Instagram Facebook I mean it's just so easy for your photos to just be spread around you can't really completely control that. I do appreciate people like Lynn Goldsmith who really fight hard for copyright right. protection on yeah. behalf of all photographers. 
Danny said the same thing that she's really kind of led the way. And it's just, it's just one of those yeah. things that I know drives me nuts when I see that with all, all form of artists. I just think it's so wrong. So if, you know, wave the magic wand and you could photograph any famous people alive or dead that, you know, you would have loved to have the opportunity. I'm going to give you each a chance to maybe name a couple people that kind of just jump out. Pam, someone... Yeah, someone asked me this the other day. I have an answer. Van Morrison. I've always wanted to photograph Van Morrison. Ever since I started shooting, I've wanted to photograph Van Morrison, and I've never had the chance. <laughs> is he always been one of your favorite musicians? Is that is yeah. it that is the music? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank. Richards. Pam, you photograph. Yeah. Willie Nelson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Patty Smith, Frank photographed her. Yeah. <laughs> Between the two of you, you've covered, you've covered, you know, I guess I was thinking a little further back in the Elvis and some of those people, but uh, Beethoven, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how well Beethoven photographed, but. <laughs> so I guess I have to ask you this song. I, um, the folks at Backstreets are going to be kind enough and, and put this podcast out. And the question always comes up with Bruce fans. What's your favorite song? And I hate that question personally. And now I'm going to ask it to both of you because it's so hard to put it in words because so many different songs mean so many different things. But are there a couple that just sort of, I don't know, Desert Island discs that, that just really, really jump out at you? I mean, I know that's hard, Pam. I mean, there's just so many. And so personal, you're too. What, you're asking what my favorite song is? Well, you could you could have a couple. I mean, I mean, you know, sitting there, I, I would imagine. And I was thinking about this last night. I was thinking about taking my mom and we uh, when when your brother was on Broadway, and we were having this conversation afterwards. And again, she's loved his music along with me for many years. And you know, and and being there that night, and she had never really heard the wish before, for example, which obviously is about your mom. And she just said, "That's it. That's the song." But they're personal, and I, I know they're, they're, man, they're many, but I'm just wondering if anything just jumps out. Yeah, there are so many. It's really impossible. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's Frank, you jump in. <laughs> I know okay. Frank's got the songs book. So, uh, <laughs> he's, he's ready. <laughs> I guess my all-time favorite, because it's just such a, an epic, is Bruce's Jungle Land. The way it just builds up the crescendo and... I mean, I get emotional at the end when when uh, Clarence comes in with that saxophone solo. Yeah. And getting this vision, hanging out a lot at the Jersey Shore and all that kind of stuff. And because I went to the Steel Pier and, uh, right. the, and all these different places up and down the coast. I mean, when that sax solo cuts in, I see Clarence standing on a stage out yeah. over the ocean, yep. dancing with one beam of bright light just right. coming down. He's just wailing. And I mean, no matter what I'm doing or where I'm at, if I'm in the car or I, I go by someplace or, or I'm home, or, as soon as that song comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing. Yeah, it's kind of like The Godfather in, in many ways for many people where it's on, I, I, that's it, I'm done. Or for my wife, Titanic, everyone sort of has their own movie. But the Jungle Land, I, I, I get. Carol and I reunited. Carol was, my wife is, was my high school sweetheart and we had, broke up many, many years ago, and then we right. had whole lives in between, right. and we reunited about 20 years ago, and it was, uh, I took uh, her to see Bruce in uh, Atlantic City, he was playing the, the mm -hmm. convention hall in Atlantic right. City on the, 
And, Is that the uh, night he played Tell Me Why, the Beatles? Yeah, but, it, but the one that got us was <laughs> Days of Hope and Dreams. Yeah. That, that became our song for this yeah. part of the Oh, ab- absolutely. Absolutely terrific. And actually, I was sitting with, I think it was Jake. Yeah. What, uh, the Blinded by the Light premiere, the movie. And when that part of the movie, when they cut to Clarence's solo, that was a difficult moment, I'm sure, for not just for fans, but especially his family. You know, Frank? Can I interject? Sure. Blinded by the Light. Manzor, who wrote the book, you know, right. Barry Park. Many, many, many years ago, when he came over to this country, he actually wanted to meet me, and he came down. And Carol and I were just getting together. It's about we had to, we got in this house, so it had to be about twenty years ago, eighteen years ago, or something. And he came down. And he, I was looking at all my my photographs, and we became friends. And then he kind of got married and got into mm-hmm. his own life in England and all. But when I saw that movie and saw five or six of my mm-hmm. photographs, right. His entire bedroom. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was kind of a huge tribute to you, that one scene. And that's interesting that he came to see you. Um, This is a question I ask on every show and maybe means more now than ever. But if you had the ability to put up a billboard today and leave a message, you can write anything on it for the world to see. What would it say? And maybe why? Pam? Okay, I'll go first. I'll use a quote from my mother. She once told me, as long as we're happy and we're healthy and we love each other, that's the whole thing. Wow. Love that. Frank? Pam just said something that made me think of my mom. And she said, as long as we have food on the table and a roof over our head, we're always going to be happy and be together. So, folks, remember, you can obtain these magnificent photos that we've been talking about by Frank Stefanko, Pam Springsteen, through their websites, through the Morrison Hotel Gallery site. We're going to link up on the show page. As I mentioned earlier, Frank put out one of the most amazing photography books ever, which, you know, as I said, I was really proud to be kind of an early patron of, which is called Further Up the Road, which really opened up all of his archives of all of his work with Bruce. Over the years, a lot of beautiful landscape work. And it's, as I said, it's really a treasure that I keep on my baby grand piano because it's too good to sit on a coffee table. And I go on gushing about it forever, but Frank knows how much, how important that book is and and just how special it is. I will link you to that book. Are there a few copies still available before I offer that? Okay. Deluxe copy. There were 350 of those. They were, Mm. they went like that. Right. But we have of collector's editions mm-hmm. left. You can get through the galleries or through Wall of Sound Gallery with Guido Harari in Italy, is his gallery. So they're available still in numbered and signed editions. Mm-hmm. I know Pam has one. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Pam, any, any other places people should, you know, to look for your photographs? Morrison Hotel, your website? MorrisonHotelGallery.com, PamelaSpringsteen.com. Great. Well, Pam, Frank, I want to thank you so much for your kindness and being our guest today. And I know we were going to be out in Asbury Park and having a lot of fun doing something, but this is our world today. And and I appreciate you bringing the combined wisdom, these stories to our audience during these difficult times. It's nice to remember the past and look forward to, to getting back to, as you say, Frank, our land of hope and dreams and maybe out of this darkness on the edge of all of our towns. So stay safe, stay healthy. Clam, please wish your mom, Adele, who just turned 95. We're all thinking about her. 
uh, of course, Mother's Day this weekend for, for all of you. And just keep taking pictures because the world needs to see these images more and more every day. And I want to give thanks, thanks to Mike. Thanks for having us, Mitch. Oh, thanks. absolutely. Thanks been, so much. been a pleasure. And I want to thank my production team at Resonate, Adam Hendricks. It's been a maestro helping me put this together. I'm even going to give a shout out to my mom this week for Mother's Day and Actually, I have to credit her because Pam, quite frankly, she's the one who said, why don't you interview his sister? That actually, that was my mother's oh, idea. I mean, she, exactly. She's, she is something else. So thank everybody for listening. And as we say here every week, when saving, because sometimes this is a financial show, it has the name in it. When saving for your financial future, remember to always pay yourself first and have a great week. They carry it with them every step that they take